don't know how you're feeling this evening. I don't know if for you it's been kind of one of those weeks. I've had a stressful afternoon thinking about, with a group, some of the big challenges that there are in our world to do with just the whole redefinition of marriage, the whole kind of sexual revolution that's sweeping in in front of us. So difficult to know how to kind of respond to these issues in a way which is clear, in a way that's compassionate. Work, I don't know what your work week's been like if you've got a job at the moment, but I think often by the time you get into these kind of dark days of November and December, it's pretty grim, isn't it? Kind of unrelenting, kind of just piles up, never seems to be an end to it. And then, well, church life is always church life, isn't it? You know, it's full of things which are absolute joys and also things which are just really perplexing, sort of things that just ought to be far more straightforward than they actually are. And then this week as well, we've had a family member who's going through just that awful kind of barrage of different tests and scans and scopes and all those sorts of things for All of us, life in this world, it often looks a bit like that. A kind of world where it's just easy to see the appearance of things as they present themselves to us. It's very easy to lose sight of the things that we know actually matter more than anything else. And because of that, well... I, for one, have been really looking forward to the prospect of just spending some time looking at the book of Esther because it's written to address a world just like the one that we find ourselves living in, a world where often we find ourselves just really shaken by what's happened, a world in which we kind of see the appearance of things and we can't see past it to the things that we know are more real behind that are behind it. A world where sometimes we actually get tempted to think, is the Lord really in control of everything that's happening here? Or is that all just wishful thinking? The book of Esther, it answers those questions to us really powerfully and persuasively. And therefore, it's a great place for us to turn to. We're going to make our way through the whole book of Esther, God willing, in our time together. We're going to break ourselves in reasonably gently this evening because it is a Friday night after all. And we're just going to look at chapter one. In our other sessions, we're going to be a bit more ambitious. We're really going to try to catch the whole flow of the story as it unfolds in front of us. But for this evening... We're in Esther chapter 1, and this is God's word. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days... When King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. 
the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the woman in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Memukan, and the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behaviour will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noblewomen of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, 
and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that, so that thing may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his region, for it is vast, all women will give honour to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Amen. We thank God for his word to us. There's one big question in the book of Esther, and it's this. Where is God in this book? Now, some of you will know that we don't find God's name written anywhere in the book of Esther. Where is God in this story? Charles Spurgeon had a wonderful illustration. Some of you will have heard it. That I think captures this just perfectly. Spurgeon said, imagine going to one of those great stately homes. So for us, we might be thinking about a National Trust property, maybe something that's maintained by the Office of Public Works, maybe even coming to a 19th century pile like Cassowellan Castle. And it's the sort of place where when you look around, you see these great old portraits hanging on the wall. And often when you go into one of those places, you see the portraits and you haven't a clue who any of the people are. If you're going to work out who it is, you have to go, and Spurgeon said, there'll be that little brass plaque at the bottom of the portrait, and you'll go and have a look at it, and it will give you the name of the person, and then you'll say, ah, now I recognize who this individual is. But Spurgeon said, it's not always like that, because sometimes when you go into one of those places, you see one of those portraits, and just like that, you recognize who it is. You don't need any little brass plaque to tell you because the portrait is of someone who is truly famous. The image, it is so striking that no name is required. You know who it is, even though the name is not spelled out for you. And Spurgeon said, I'd almost go as far as saying that the book of Esther is like that more than any other place. Because in it, God's name is not mentioned. It's not written down. But yet, in this story that we'll think about through the weekend, we will see God's image, God's likeness, everywhere through it because he is the great actor in this story his name is not mentioned 
because we don't even need it to be. We see the Lord. He is at work, even though his name is not recorded. Let's look at this first chapter together and see even at this stage in the story, if we can see something of God at work, acting behind the scenes, getting ready for the great reversal and turnaround that he will bring about in the life of Esther and Mordecai. I have a question, a question to take to chapter one to try to break into it and understand what it's saying. And it's simply this. Who is the real king in Esther chapter one? Who's the real king? Who has power and authority in the verses that we read together? And even from an initial glance, when nearly everyone's going to say, well, of course, it is King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes. He's the king. He is the one who is in control. Nearly every single line of this first chapter builds a picture of a king who has great power and magnificent pomp. Everything is put in place in order to display the glory of King Ahasuerus. By whatever standard you choose to measure a ruler by, Ahasuerus seems to be right at the top of the pile. This is a leader who truly stands out. King Ahasuerus is the Persian emperor. And his empire, well, it's described for us in verse 1, it is mind-boggling in its extent. He rules over a kingdom which is truly vast. It has 127 different provinces. It stretches from the northwest of India through Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Iran, Iraq, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Turkey, northern Greece, Egypt, Libya, Eritrea, Ethiopia, and northern Sudan. He rules over it all, and he has huge resources and wealth. A century after the events that we've read about here, the Greeks under Alexander the Great, they swept in and they defeated the Persians. They entered the city of Susa, and there they found 1,200 tons of gold and silver and 270 tons of gold coins. He rules over a vast empire. And he has massive wealth. A king like this doesn't just have one palace. He has several. Here, he's in his winter palace. Verse 2, it's in Susa, not far from the modern-day border of Iran and Iraq. And in Susa, there is a small minority of displaced people. A little community of exiles that have been deported to Susa. They're Jewish people, and they have made their home there. It's the third year of the reign of this world's superpower. 
and he has put on a great exhibition and feast. Describe for us in verses 4 to 8. He's brought in all the movers and shakers. He brings in his lieutenants, his princes, his nobles. All are brought in. He shows them his royal glory, his splendor, and his pomp. And it lasts for many days. This is an exhibition that goes on for 180 days. Just pause for a second, take that in. It's as if it takes half a year for Ahasuerus to show off his greatness. It is a six-month extravaganza. And anyone in the empire who was anyone, they were there. All the power brokers had been gathered in. They're brought in for a purpose. A king like this doesn't do it for no reason. Ahasuerus is getting ready to flex his muscles. He wants to mobilize his forces to go against Greece. That's the only significant part of the known world that was not under his control. And Ahasuerus, who says, I am the great king, he's shoring up support so that they can go and campaign against the Greeks. It's a massive political PR campaign. All the opinion formers are there. It takes six months to allow successive waves of high-ranking Persians to come in. The king is going to wine and dine them so he has got their loyalty. And after that's over, he follows it up with a second feast, a garden party, for all the people of Susa. And it is going to last for a week. It's designed to be stunning. When King Ahasuerus does things, he wants to do it in such a way that it takes your breath away. It's a lavish affair. The military and the political elite, they are all gathered in. Ahasuerus is like a god. He sees everything. He owns all that he sees, and he wants everyone to know about it. It seems that no one in the world could ever even hold a candle to him. He is the one of grandeur, and he lives in his extravagant royal palace. Catch some of the details that our author gives to us about what this place is like. Still in the first main paragraph there, everything about the royal palace in Susa, it is just incredibly opulent. Try to visualize these curtains made of beautiful white fabric and woven with blue, hung on silver curtain trains attached to marble pillars. The very ground that people walk on, the seats that they sit on, well, they're made of the things that people normally would keep locked away in their treasure store. The floor, it's this beautiful mosaic, and the furniture, it is gilded. We get some lovely little details like verse 7. No two wine cups were identical, everyone unique, and the wine flowed freely. Whatever you wanted to have, 
you could have. The only law, verse 8, was one of complete extravagance. Drink as much as you wish. Ahasuerus displays his wealth and his bounty. He is a man of exceeding great power. Everything shouts out. Ahasuerus rules. And he wants people to be intimidated. And he wants people to marvel. Well, at this banquet, this godlike king gets drunk. And while he's intoxicated, he begins to brag about the beauty of his queen. And finally, at some point in the bragging, he decides that as the grand finale, he is going to show everyone just how stunningly beautiful Queen Vashti is. And so he calls her to come in. He's shown off all his wealth. He's shown off his power. And now he wants to put his trophy wife on display. He summons her in so that these men who have been drinking for a week can come and leer at her. Even by the standards of the day, this would have been a scandalous insult to his queen. It's the way the world operates. We're to think that Ahasuerus has got it all. He is omnipotent. He is almighty. The beautiful people love him. He is in full control of all that's happening. So we've painted a picture there. And let's pause for a second. And I want you to try to think, how would that have looked to God's people? There was a small little community of them there living in Susa. What would they have made of all of this? It's a good question to think about because we live in a world just like Esther and Mordecai's world. We live in a world where often when we look around, the things that we see appear to say to us that God is not here. God is not reigning. He is not in control. And how do we make sense of it? Esther and Mordecai are there in Susa. They see all this with their eyes. They know they've got these promises from God. But it looks as if the promises have come to absolutely nothing. They thought that their God reigned. They thought that they worshipped the one who had all glory and authority. But now it looks as if it's King Ahasuerus, who is the majestic one. Looks like he is all-powerful. Looks like he is the one who is in control. At times it seemed as if there was so little evidence that God's promises actually stood. That's true. A few of them who had been deported from Israel had gone back home to Jerusalem. But even those who had gone back there, it was tiny. There was nothing impressive about this. There they were in the Persian Empire. And it felt like the true faith 
was almost about to be wiped out. They were thinking to themselves, can our faith survive even in this world post-Jerusalem? Same sort of thing that I think we often think. Can our faith survive in a post-Christian age? Can we believe what God said? Can we base our life in it? Or all these other things that kind of dazzle us? Are they the things that really are in control of all that's happening? So King Ahasuerus, a great king on his throne. Is this the throne that rules the world? Where is God in all of this? Here in chapter 1, we only get little glimpses of where this story is going. But those little snapshots that we're afforded, they preview where this story will take us to. Because although King Ahasuerus thinks that he is the great king of kings, he is actually not quite as in control as appearances might first suggest. Get a little sense of this in verses 11 and 12. He says to his attendants, Would you get my wife? Call her in. Bring her before me. He doesn't ask just one person to go and get her. He asks seven of the eunuchs to bring the king into the gathering. He wants to put her on display. Look at verse 12. She refuses. We're not told exactly why she refuses to come, but we can probably guess that she didn't want to be gawked at. She's not about to come and be leered at by these drunken men. What Vashti does, it is gutsy. It's an incredibly brave decision. And it's a decision that she would have known would have had massive implications for her. She didn't come. King Ahasuerus might be the sort of king who sends out orders to the very farthest corners of the known world. But his own wife will not listen to him. Let's go back to the garden party. They've been waiting and waiting a little bit longer. And now things are starting to get quite awkward. One of the eunuchs comes and whispers something in King Ahasuerus's ear. Verse 12, what? The king is indignant. Can you imagine him spluttering into his golden goblet as he's informed Queen Vashti is not coming? He is enraged. He is absolutely furious. If you glance over to 2 verse 1, you'll see that it takes some time for his anger to abate. He is enraged by all of this. And so he raises the matter with his counsellors and his legal advisors. Not one of them. Verse 14, the whole entourage... And in verse 15, he gives them a straightforward question. What can be done? Aren't there laws about this sort of thing? 
Can Queen Vashti really simply just refuse to come? Well, the judgment of this supposedly great ruler is impaired. He says he's the wise one and the powerful one. But he makes all sorts of mistakes. It was foolish to ask Vashti to come. Then it was a mistake to turn this whole thing into a political crisis. And now this great ruler is about to take some seriously bad advice. The whole thing is written in a way which is deliciously full of irony. Chapter 1 is supposed to make you smile. You should chuckle at the things that it says. Because here Ahasuerus is, with all his supposed power. He sends not one but seven eunuchs to bring in the queen. And she simply shrugs it off. This one who claims to be the governor is actually governed by his own temper. And he's intoxicated and ruled by wine. And despite all his claims to greatness, he can't even rule his own heart. His temper gets the better of him. King Ahasuerus doesn't know what to do. And so the one who claims to be the great ruler lets others make the decisions for him. He creates legislation to impose on others what he can't do to himself. He's supposed to rule to the very farthest corners of the known world, and yet he can't lead the one he's supposed to be closest to. He can't control his wife by a decree, but his solution is try to try to control all the women of the empire by a decree. It gets better when it comes to the irony. For all these leaders and advisors, the thing that they're most exercised about is what will happen if word of this gets out? What will happen if people hear what Vashti has done? We've got to keep this quiet. We can't possibly tell people about the Queen's attitude. But how do they do it? They use the wonderfully, superbly efficient Persian postal service to publish to everyone right across the empire what Queen Vashti has done. And he writes into law things that only show his own weakness and insecurity. We're meant to laugh to ourselves when we read about a leader who asks everyone to do what he himself is unable to do. Ahasuerus is not the great king that he is trying to show himself to be. He doesn't really seem to be in control at all. And that should make us start to ask this question. Well, if he's not in control, who really is in control of all that's happening? Chapter 1 unmasks even our world today. It shows us the absolute folly 
of worldly power and wealth and beauty. This king, he is nothing but a self-serving and self-indulgent man. And this display, it is nothing but a facade. You'll all know, I'm sure, Hans Christian Andersen's The Emperor's New Clothes as a story. It's all about this vain emperor. He cares about nothing except wearing and displaying the greatest and the most modern fashions. And the king ends up hiring two swindlers who promise that they will produce him the best set of clothes in a fabric which is invisible to anyone who is unfit for his position in life or else hopelessly stupid. In Anderson's story, the emperor's ministers, they can't see the clothing for themselves, but they pretend that they can see it for fear of appearing unfit for their positions. The emperor, he is exactly the same. And finally, the thieves who do all of this, they report to the king that the suit is finished. They mime dressing a minute, and then the emperor marches in procession before his subjects. And nearly all of the townspeople, they play along with the pretense, not wanting to appear unfit for their position or stupid. And then there's a little child in the crowd, too young to understand anything about the desirability of keeping up a pretense. And he blurts out, the emperor is wearing nothing at all. And then the cry is taken up by others. The emperor cringes, suspects that it's true, but continues the procession. Our modern world, it is just like that. There's a facade, and everyone says the facade is true. It says wealth and success and power and influence it's at its best when it is in a worldly form. And every so often, the mask slips. And we've seen quite a bit of that recently, haven't we? We've seen it in government. We've seen it in the media and entertainment. There's this pretense. Everyone goes along with the lie that, oh, you can be really worldly, really happy at the same time. And then God in his providence allows the mask to slip. And we see that despite all the bravado, even with all these claims, the way that things appear, the way that they're presented to us, it is not actually true. Who's the real king? In Esther chapter 1. Well, it is certainly not King Ahasuerus. He's a king who can hardly rule at all. And so we look to a better king, to a higher throne, upon whom sits the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And this book of Esther, as we make our way through it, will remind us about where real power lies 
in our world. And we need to hear this. And we need to believe it. We need to hear it because with our eyes, we see something really different all the time. But God's word will say to us, there is a higher throne above all the thrones of the supposed great ones in our world. And on that throne sits the one who exercises real power. He's the one who really steers the events of history. Here in Esther, behind the scenes, God will be working out his purposes. And he'll be working out his purposes in a world exactly like our world today. Even when the really influential players seem to be those who are living morally bankrupt lives, Esther will teach us that they are not the people who hold true power. This book will tell you that behind wicked governments and foolish leaders and corrupt lawmakers, there is a God who is in charge. So remember this. The book of Esther tells us that God is at work even when it doesn't look like he's there. Even when it appears as if he is absent, God is at work. Think of the mess of our nation. Think of the mess that our own lives often are. Think of the darkness that there is. Think of the darkness that there even can be inside us. Esther will say, God is at work in a world like that. Even in the immoral, decadent Persian court, God is working out his purposes. And we'll see from that that in our lives, in your life, right at this moment, God is at work. Even in all the dysfunctionality of things, the Lord He is there. He's there in the tiny little details of what happens. And he is there in the events that stretch over 127 different provinces. In our families, in our marriages, in our places of work and study. In good days and in bad days, God is working out his purposes we'll see that God can use even the tiniest of little things to turn everything around. We'll see that God is not powerless when it comes to using evil and tragedies to achieve his purposes. Through all the mess described in this chapter, God was at work. He was putting everything into position to do something which would display his glory in a spectacular way. The invisible God is working behind the scenes to bring about the salvation of his people and his plan cannot be thwarted. Let me close with this. Ahasuerus was 
in many ways a great king. But he was also a king who leaves us longing, really desiring at a deep level for a better king. There's something about the glory and power and wealth of it that we're drawn to. It's right that a king would have these things. But Ahasuerus is not the right sort of king. Esther chapter 1 leaves us longing for a better king. And that king is our Lord Jesus Christ. He's a king with complete power and authority who is not a tyrant. His rule is not just from India to Ethiopia. It's not even simply confined to this whole earth. Our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, he rules the entire cosmos. He has immeasurable wealth. The whole earth belongs to him. And just like King Ahasuerus, our king is a king who holds banquets to which he calls his subjects. And the great thing about the Lord Jesus is that he is a king of a different order. He doesn't simply invite the elites. He doesn't just call the great and the powerful and the mighty to his banquets. When Christ calls people, everyone is invited. And the things that he shows off are not the things that he's amassed for his own glory. When Christ calls us to himself, he wants to show us the beautiful treasures of the gospel. The Lord Jesus is not the kind of king who uses and abuses his bride. That's what Ahasuerus did. Just wanted to show her off, to build his own prestige. The Lord Jesus Christ when it comes to his bride, the church. He loved her so much that he laid down his very life for her. He doesn't bring her in so that people could leer at her. Christ clothes his bride. He beautifies her. And at his feast, he offers us himself. That's the king that we have. And knowing that our Lord Jesus is the King of Kings, well, that is our ultimate reason for being sure that despite what things look like in your life and in my life, God really is in control in all the messiness, in all the darkness in the massive geopolitical things and in the tiny details of what's happened today. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, he is the one who's absolutely committed to keeping his promises and preserving his people. We can trust him. We can trust him. That is a word that we need to hear. Because what we see, it'll say something else. But the truth of God's word to us is that Jesus is king. He is on his throne. And 
all of his promises, he will bring to completion. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we want to confess to you that we go through this life so often walking by sight rather than walking by faith. We see things all around us and they dazzle us and they intimidate and threaten us and they bewitch us. Father, please, speak your word to us as we spend this weekend together. And will we leave here absolutely convinced who the true king is? And may we go from here loving him and trusting him, even in all the darkness and confusion of this world. In Christ's name, amen.